welcome to the Editor's Podcast for August 2021. I'm Phil Smith. Uh, I'm joined by my co-editor, Geraint Fuller, and we're going to talk through this really quite bumper issue in uh, in August. So um, you're, you're going to take us to our Editor's Choice, first of all, Geraint, I think. Uh, yes, I'm delighted to be talking about suspecting dementia, canaries, chameleons and zebras um, from the group in London, Queen Square. Uh, first author's Jeremy Johnson, but it's actually a very a long list of extremely experienced clinical neurologists who've all contributed to what I think is an outstanding article. It's full of lots of ideas. In a way, you could almost summarise it as being as the opposite of a mini mental test. I mean, dementia is one of those conditions where a lot of people think it's only Alzheimer's and you know it's something that's easy to diagnose and I think what you get from reading this article is an extraordinarily rich analysis of the clinical manifestations of dementia and the clues and ways in which you can bring the knowledge that they've accrued over the years to the clinic. So I mean they talk about canaries, things that point to an early diagnosis of dementia or not dementia uh, they discuss a number of the things that we're all very familiar with. The idea that somebody who comes along and describes in great detail how they put the keys in the fridge probably not got dementia, whereas the person who laughs off the fact that they can't particularly remember how they managed to get to the clinic it is clearly a completely different thing. They, they also talk about a, a whole range of interesting and useful clinical phenomena. I'm sure everyone will be familiar with the expression, go to the mattresses which obviously you get in The Godfather as a way of inciting that you need to get excited. In, the, in this paper, you need to go to the tables. If you go to the tables at the end, there's this fantastic assortment of clinical gems. And um, I mean, just to summarise a few of them, if a patient, for example, describes that they're going deaf or something, often it's actually a word-finding disability rather than actually anything to do with your hearing. There's, if somebody, when they come into the clinic and they try and sit down, they can't get their bottom on the seat, this is bottom apraxia, which is a feature of posterior cortical atrophy or CBD. So you've got these extraordinary little clinical gems all the way through. It also, I think, acts very nicely as a primer for all of dementia and, and cognitive neurology. I don't know about you, but I've often found the idea that surface dyslexia is something that's a bit tricky. They explain it beautifully. If someone who tries to read yacht, the word yacht, uh, phonetically as if they'd never come across it before. So I, I can go on at great length because this is a beautiful paper, which I would urge everyone, experienced or inexperienced, to, to read and to digest and probably cut out and keep uh, or rather print out because obviously everything's online. Yeah, it's, it's a real peach, isn't it? And, um, you know, and, and, and I think actually not only should all neurologists read it, it's a bit like, uh, you know, all doctors should read Atta Gwanda's Being Mortal. All, all neurologists should read you know, suspecting dementia. It is such a great paper. But it's going to become more of our core work, isn't it? We hear at the ABN about aducanumab and, and, and other monoclonals, which are going to revolutionise dementia and are going to mean that uh, it's going to become a big part of our work to phenotype dementia, to make sure that the right people get the treatment. Just to give the background to the paper, you probably remember that it was actually Marty Samuels was going to come from Boston and tell and sort of do a chief's round and talk about a, a dementia patient, you know, in real time and was going to use his uh, series of tests that he used. He's got a great test of verbal comprehension. I'll just do it on you guys. So uh, he is in Boston, remember. So he says, uh, raise the number of fingers on your left hand that corresponds to the order in the alphabet of the first letter of the name of this city. 
So, oh, Geraint has raised two fingers on his left hand. So uh, that's good. And it works well for Cardiff. I mean, Gloss <laughs> will, will need a, a slight amendment, I think. But uh, but yeah, no, he was going to do all that sort of thing. But at the last minute, unfortunately, he couldn't do it. And Nick Fox stood in and did this sensational presentation of a pa- with a patient with corticobasal generation syndrome and showed us bottom apraxia in live form. It was great. And we know since then, we were trying to persuade Nick to do a walk around the brain, but he's such a busy chap. We even set Mary Riley on him, but still. And eventually Jonathan Schott got Nick and several others to put this wonderful, wonderful paper together. So we're so, so pleased that they, they've uh, they've done this. And, you know, uh, in, in the manuscript, I found only one spelling mistake. I think the apostrophe in cuffs was slightly wrong. That was all, but uh, everything else, perfect. So this is a great paper. Maybe we'll be taking up the canaries, chameleons and zebras a bit more for other papers, I don't know. But uh, no, read it and read it again, cut it out, put it on the wall. Uh, this is going to run and run, this paper. And I think, I think it's going to inspire, if you were a neurologist in training and you were thinking, am I interested in cognitive neurology? Read this paper and you'll be interested. It's an extraordinary description of phenomenology and the power of the clinical method in trying to make the, the diagnosis. So fantastic. We, we sort of have a, a clinical theme next in that I think you're going to talk us through about corticobasal degeneration. Yes, yeah, so corticobasal degeneration uh, syndrome. So this is from Tim Anderson's group in, uh, in New Zealand, in Christchurch, New Zealand. And uh, I, I think he's done a great service here, really. I mean, they've clarified what is a very complex area. You know, we all think of the alien limb when we think of corticobasal degeneration. And, but it's probably, you know, the big advantage of practical neurology is it's not just described alien limb, but, but we have some clinical cases to, to illustrate it. And so it's, it's sort of grounded in proper clinical practice. And, you know, we might not always pick it up when somebody says, well, you know, my right arm's becoming difficult to use and difficulty, you know, in, the, in their case, they say doing up a bra, cutting up food, that sort of thing. And you no, know, that, that is the beginning of alien limb. It's this altered sense of limb ownership as well. The, the paper goes into the area of discrepancy between the underlying cause and the underlying pathology and the underlying genetics, really, and the actual syndrome that happens so many times in degenerative conditions. So, of course, corticobasal degeneration is the commonest cause of corticobasal syndrome, but it's not the only cause. And uh, there are other things, and we would have to to think of CJD, for example, or uh, Hashimoto's encephalopathy and thalamic cavernoma, a whole load of other things that can do it. But then then again, the corticobasal degeneration can cause other syndromes as well. It tends not to cause Parkinsonism or uh, multiple system atrophy, but but it can cause something that looks like progressive supranuclear palsy. It can cause primary progressive aphasia, that sort of thing. So I, I think we, you know, we need to have a good grasp of this condition. It's, it's one of those where understanding uh, the, the pathology of it, uh, understanding the, the clinical syndrome is going to be helpful in helping a lot of people getting the diagnosis early. There isn't really anything more than symptomatic treatment just yet, but we're going to get protein-based treatments coming in the future without any doubt. And uh, uh, so I, I think this will be uh, an area that is going to change rapidly. And, and I think it is quite helpful because it includes a lot of patients who have quite challenging clinical f- syndromes. And, and I think, first of all, it, it broadens out from the absolutely classical corticobasal phenomena with 
alien hand and so on, to, to really a lot of those patients where you know things are going wrong and it's really quite hard for you to pin it down. And those patients can often have ended up seeing someone for an ataxia and Parkinson's, all sorts of different things. And then actually bringing those things together, uh, particularly if they've got a sensory variant or a, a, a balance upset, to give them a diagnosis actually is really quite helpful. So I think it draws together quite a number of different strands clinically, which obviously draw together quite a number of strands pathologically. So yeah. it's a very nice synthesis of a very difficult area. And as is often the case, it's very nice exposition of all of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, the next one um, I was also going to talk through actually is visual hallucination. So it's on the same type of theme, I think. This is from Ramona Weil and uh, uh, Andrew Lees in uh, UCL in London. So it's, it's a lovely little paper. They put together the three commonest causes in neuro-ophthalmology of visual hallucination. So it's not trying to tell us about everything, but it's picked these out. And of course, they are those you get with dementia with Lewy bodies, the Charles Bonnet syndrome, and then one that I'm not so familiar with, peduncular hallucinosis. So dementia with Lewy bodies, I think we all know, of course, that these are usually people and animals. They don't speak. It's usually in low light. They're non-threatening. The people are not concerned by seeing them particularly but the important point that's brought out is that they strongly predict a poor outcome for Parkinson's disease in terms of dementia and death. Charles Bonnet syndrome, and there's a nice picture of him in this paper, a lithograph from 1769. Um, he described the symptom first in his blind grandfather. Um, you know, this, I mean, I, I knew about this syndrome, of course, but then the thing that changed it for me really what uh, was Eric Neiman's uh, report so touchingly in 2018 in Practical Neurology when he described this as a very, very distressing symptom, compounding his long-standing blindness from glaucoma. And it's like a, well, I, I mean, I explained to the students, I suppose, about visual hallucinations in Charles Bonnet that you know, the visual system's not a camera just recording passively, but is constantly generating its own images based on Bayesian probability of what it expects to see there. So, uh, you know, when there's no input, it just carries on generating its own images. And uh, it's nice to have it described so uh, so clearly in this paper. And then peduncular hallucinosis, was, wasn't so sure what this was. Not sure I've seen many cases of it, but uh, it's another Lamite syndrome. So we talked about Lamites last time. And in 1922, they actually described the case Lamite described, where uh, a person gets a stroke involving a third and fourth nerve palsy and ataxic hemiparesis, and then starts seeing cats and chickens and people dressed in bizarre costumes. So, you know, I, I learned a lot from reading this. And they do mention the other causes, epilepsy, migraine, prayers, CJD, schizophrenia, of course, lots of drugs, dopaminergic, cholinergic, serotonergic, recreational drugs, LSD, of course, drug withdrawal, uh, DTs and things, but also bereavement and shipwreck survivors. Mm. So uh, there we are. That, they're, they're the people that get uh, visual hallucinations. So if, if you need to know about this condition, this is the paper to do it. Beautifully written again, has to be with Andrew Lees as an author. Yeah, and I thought it was very nice and actually interesting. Um, extra campaign hallucinations are featured in this and the suspecting dementia paper because clearly they're quite a useful clinical phenomena, which you may not have picked the name up. I won't spoil the details. You can read it in the paper. Um, Phil, I did wonder if they've had to take a case from 1927, peduncular hallucinations may actually be rarer than what <laughs> might anticipate. Reassuring, thank you, Karen. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So actually, our next one is um, from Oxford, isn't it? Simon Rinaldi has written a, a great paper, Nodal and Paranodal Antibodies. So you're going to talk to us about that, Karen. So, so Genev Femi with Simon Rinaldi's group talk about this. And, and this whole article, the whole issue, is really one where we're tending to be splitting rather than lumping. Um, we're trying to sort of dissect down and, and look at things in a bit more detail. And, and this is a recognition that Guillain-Barre syndrome and um, CIDP are not single diseases. They're really quite dramatic and complicated diseases. And what is being carved out now with the nodal and paranodal antibodies is a subgroup within the Guillain-Barre and CIDP group of conditions which seem to behave differently and seem to have a different pathogenesis and a different prognosis and different treatments. And they talk about the, no, the nodal and paranodal area, which is um, obviously something we wouldn't necessarily have thought about. We've thought about demyelinating and axonal neuropathies. Well, these are, are recognizing that sometimes the paranode node can go wrong. And there are a series of different things, neurophagin, 186 and 155, which we'll all become familiar with in time, contactin 1, contactin-associated protein 1. So these are uh, a specific antibodies that have been generated. And whilst they don't produce individually succinct or well-defined clinical entities, they all have very common features, and some of them do have very particular features. Very often, they'll be quite severe, relatively slower-onset Guillain-Barre syndromes, um, men more than women, and often have not responded to IVIG or plasma exchange or steroids, if you've gone down that avenue. And they'll often have other features of which perhaps the most dramatic is a nephrotic syndrome or proteinuria. And the key thing is if they are recognized, then treatment with rituximab, for example, seems to be more effective than other agents. So I think there's quite a lot to be learned from these cases in a way, how do we translate it practically? Well, the first thing I think is to make sure you test the urine for protein in patients with Guillain-Barre and actually quantify if it's, if it's abnormal because that seems to be a powerful predictor. And I, I think there's also a very strong case for saving serum at the beginning of the illness before you plasma exchange or give them an IVIG because these antibodies are available. They take a bit of time. Oxford um, will do them for you and they provide details on how to do that in the UK. But clearly, if you've already given someone IVIG and then plasma exchange them or whatever and done all these different things, you lose the um, uh, diagnostic power of the early test. So I think those two things to think about it, recognize these different phenomena, think about taking saved serum and testing the urine. And then you may well be able to save patients really a very unpleasant illness if you can recognize these conditions early. Yeah, because I mean, there clearly are good practical reasons that neurologists should know about this. I mean, it, it really does change the management. It changes the prognosis. Uh, the, these are severe conditions, and um, as you say, they, they've got the additional features, severe sensory ataxia or tremor sometimes, but actually the nephrotic syndrome. The very first case I saw with Guillain-Barre, actually, as a trainee with Andrew Bowden in Liverpool, had nephrotic syndrome as well. So I thought that all Guillain-Barre had nephrotic syndrome at the time, and uh, it was indeed a, a severe case. So these are pathologically distinct. I'd not heard before, actually, until Simon alerted us to it of uh, nodal and paranodal antibodies, but apparently these facilitate adhesion of myelin to axon and localize the, the voltage-gated sodium-potassium channels. So there we are. That's what they do, but uh, they're, they're clearly really important. And when they're not working, you get a severe disease and it doesn't respond well to the treatment but it might respond well to rituximab. So uh, even though there's low level evidence, that, that's the big change in management. So in, in, important, I think, because we're seeing these cases, but not necessarily until now calling them paranodopathies. 
The interesting thing, of course, is it's a new test which has been able to carve out this clinical phenotype. And I think we're now going to discuss a few different tests. And I, I know that we're going to move on to a, a topic that you, you've always felt entirely on top of, which is neurogenetics, Phil. Neurogenetics. Thank you, uh, Guy. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't help feeling that readers might look through the list of contents and reach this paper and read whole genome sequencing and think, ah, oh, yeah, I'll move on, because uh, that would have been my reaction, maybe. But Hugh Morris, who's written this, Hugh Morris in, in London, uh, has again done neurology a great service by making it so clear why clinical neurologists must know about this and why it's worth reading about it. I mean, neurology, we know, has got the largest number of different genetic diseases, uh, rare diseases very often. And increasingly, with the whole genome sequencing becoming so cheap, it's becoming a core part of neurological practice. And as with any diagnosis, as we've heard already, making a genetic diagnosis is really important. But it's important that the clinician is involved in the phenotyping, the clinician is involved in discussing the, what the genetic test means to the patient and uh, asking the right question and obtaining the right consent because you know, they need to know that the test may reveal unexpected results that are not related to their condition, for example. Their, their risk of Alzheimer's or breast cancer might come out, you know, the non-paternity, this sort of thing. Or it all needs to be there in the consent. But the bottom line of this paper is about whole genome sequencing, which is scary, but the bottom line is MDTs. You know, we need to be uh, not just leaving it all to one expert. We need to have clinicians uh, wanting and actually participating in MDTs, whether it's uh, a neuromuscular dementia or epilepsy gene, MDT, you know, we get all the specialists together and discuss them. But there's so much to learn, and the MDTs are a great way to do it, but it's for the best interest of the patient that the clinicians are involved. So I'm a big fan of this paper, actually, um, and I would urge you, if you're a clinician, to read it and and, and help your patients as a result of doing that. Go on. Excellent. So um, astonishingly uh, keen on one test. Uh, so I'm about to talk about a slightly different but uh, rather more everyday test. Well, it's everyday for ophthalmologists. So the, the OCT, the optical coherence tomography, is something that's been introduced uh, very widely and is widely available in ophthalmological departments uh, really for the last 10, 15 years. And broadly speaking, it gives you a scan of the structure of the retina and gives you lots of insights into what the disc looks like. And uh, Claire Fraser and, and uh, Christine Lewick have done a beautiful job describing the methodology. They've sort of described it as uh, like ultrasound for infrared light, which produces these beautiful pictures, which they illustrate very nicely. And, and what use is it? Well, it, it allows you to look at the disc to grade, rather than grading the discs on the, how many diopters of papilledema it is, you can look at the structure in detail. You can then follow it. So you can very readily see that for IIH, that's very helpful. You can look at the structure of the retina, which allows you to distinguish, uh, for example, optic neuritis from a macular edema that can mimic it. You can use it for a whole range of things that are immediately available. The ophthalmologists obviously use it for glaucoma and following um, the progression of those diseases. But there's all kinds of things that we might be able to do just over the horizon. So you can potentially look at the uh, retinal venous pulsation. And so it may be a method of indirectly measuring intracranial pressure. You can look at the thickness of retinal fiber 
layers which change in various degenerative diseases in things like MS and so on. So it may become a very good surrogate marker for the progression of those different conditions. So this is one of those situations where you have something which is available now. It's immediately practically useful, but actually holds the promise for some very challenging and useful interventions in the future. And, and a great a great read. Yeah. And, and again, you know, another great author. I mean, Christian Lueck has a great command of language and uh, he, he's an editor's joy, really. You know, so he makes a very complicated subject, perhaps very, very clear for us. And it obviously is something that neurologists must know about because uh, increasingly this tool is is part of clinical practice. You know, we, we talked about, you know, for papilledema, that if we use fingolimod for MS, then, you know, we need to be uh, distinguishing the uh, the reasons for scotoma, for you know, optic neuritis from macular edema, that sort of thing. It, it's, uh, it's, it's widely in use at the moment. Um, and may have lots more uses, monitoring toxicity for ethambutol, methanol, etc. It's constantly improving as well. I mean, the resolution of OCT has become really quite remarkable and almost near histological resolution, it's called. So uh, it's a great tool. And actually, uh, just just leaping forward slightly to, to a, a paper in a moment, maybe neurologists should be interpreting their own OCT. However, well, that's uh, just a spoiler for the paper we're going to talk about, the one after next. So what we're talking about next, actually, is, um, is pineal and uh, colloid cysts. And um, this is from uh, Michael Jenkinson in Liverpool, Jenks, as he's known. And uh, this is, again, another beautifully written paper. I mean, he's the expert in this field, and we were so pleased that he's uh, written this um, for us. It, because we're always worried, aren't we, about pineal cysts. At least we're not worried necessarily, but patients are scared stiff. They've got a cyst in their brain, and the doctor is saying, oh, it's okay to have a cyst in your brain. It doesn't need any follow-up. We need an authority to tell us what to do. Uh, and they're very, very common. I mean, um, we, we hear that uh, 25 to 40% of autopsies uh, include a pineal cyst, a microscopic pineal cyst, that is. And um, you know, maybe 10.8% of large consecutive brain MR imaging studies, 10.8% there's a pineal cyst. So it's everywhere. Um, and we got some very reassuring words from uh, Jenks, who says, well, yeah, I mean, in fact, I don't know whether we'd be brave enough to follow his advice, actually. He says that simple pineal cysts, less than 10 millimetres, no need for follow-up. They're just a simple variation of normal. So that's really, really clear. But if you've got an incidental pineal cyst, regardless of size, even if it's more than 10 millimetres, that patient can be reassured and does not usually need contrast-enhanced MRI. Will we be brave enough to follow that advice? I hope so. And it's really only the more atypical findings where, well, actually, again, he says if they're atypical pineal cysts, long-term follow-up is not required. I mean, what he says is if, if they're causing symptoms, hydrocephalus, they're causing that, well, he gives some specifics on the type of surgery that might be needed. And uh, if they are non-hydrocephalic and symptomatic pineal cysts, then they need to be referred on. But mostly it's all pretty reassuring with pineal cysts. Where it comes to colloid cysts, he's very keen, I think, that uh, neurosurgeons get involved. So obviously, if they're symptomatic colloid cysts, risk of sudden death, etc., they need to see a neurosurgeon urgently. I think we knew that. But um, he says, actually, 
everyone with an incidental colloid cyst should be reviewed by a neurosurgeon. So maybe that's a slight change of practice, me, or perhaps I've been uh, not, I mean, I, and hitherto I've uh, usually gone on the radiologist saying it's entirely incidental rescan in the year. He says, no, they should see a neurosurgeon. And the reason he says is to ascertain their symptoms and consider the risk of further treatment. So maybe that's um, something that will change my practice slightly. And he also says everyone with a colloid cyst should have their neurocognitive function tested as well. So uh, some things to go out there. I, and I like the paper. It's so practical. It's written by the expert. You can believe what is said there. Uh, and, uh, and I think it's really helpful to have this. And I, I, mean, I think going back to the, the pineal cysts, I've always, it's always struck me that it's quite remarkable that the pathological process is metric and that 10 millimetres turns out to be the size of danger which suggests to me that it, it's actually an incidental and, and not particularly relevant metric. Yeah, yeah, I wondered how that worked, yeah. Yeah, okay, well, um, yeah, so the next one we were going to discuss... A little bit of controversy. Yeah, so I think we've both listed ourselves for this one, but uh, so this is from the editor, um, soon to be retiring editor of the JNMP, which is our sister journal. They like to think of them as a parent journal, but no, it's our sister journal, uh, is Matthew Kernan from Sydney. So Matthew, a great friend of the journal, he has written an editorial about should neurologists essentially be doing their own neurophysiology, because they do everywhere in the world, apart from the UK and the States. Uh, and certainly in uh, Australia, New Zealand, you know, it, it is uh, very much neurologists do their own physiology. They read their own EEGs. Uh, I was a consultant in Cornwall for four years, and the nearest expert neurophysiologist was an hour and a quarter away, come every two weeks. So I did my own neurophysiology there. And and you probably do as well, Geraint, at least used to quite a lot. And, and of course, what you do is you, you hear that a patient wakes in the night shaking their hand and uh, you bring them up to the clinic, see them for the first time, put the leads on, make the diagnosis and refer them to a hand surgeon at a one-stop clinic. So that sort of thing you can do if you are the clinician and the neurophysiologist. But I think that Matthew uh, considers this question very carefully. And I think you know, he, he makes some very strong points, actually, by saying that you, you need the test done by someone who not only understands the patient's neurological presentation, but who can determine what is best studied and can interpret the findings in situ with the patient sitting there and then explain it all to them. So it's clearly is right. And he finishes actually by saying, well, maybe by analogy, we should be reporting our own scans as well, or histopathology or OCT maybe. Karen, what, what do you think of Matthew's well, editorial? I mean, I mean, you know, inevitably, there's always a, a counter-argument to, to any of these different things. I think the, the notion that clinical neurophysiology is an extension of clinical neurology is one I think no one would disagree with. And I suppose the only issue is whether the technical skills that are needed are sufficient that actually it gets in the way of somebody being able to do it. So you need somebody who's a, a practiced and expert at doing those things. And I think... In a way, where that line falls is the crucial thing, because a lot of the neurophysiology is relatively straightforward. And uh, therefore, you can go for the Australian model where people can learn how to do elements of it. And, and generally, they tend to divide into those who do neurophysiology peripherally, looking at nerve conduction studies and EMGs and that kind of stuff, or do EEGs. And that seems very comfortable. Um, but, but then there are more complicated things. So if you've got someone doing jitter and 
uh, some of the more complicated phenomena, it seems hard call to get a general neurologist to be doing those things. And likewise, if you've got interoperative monitoring, all this kind of stuff, well, clearly that's a different skill set. So I think what this is aiming to do is to provoke everyone to think about how they can do things and whether we can do things in a better way than we currently do. And perhaps on this rare occasion, learn both from our Australian cousins and our sister journal. Indeed. Yeah, I think we will still need experts, actually. I, I can't imagine uh, a jobbing neurologist doing a single fibre study on a neonate or something. You know, I think we're, we're going to need experts. But it's just really whether their time might be better spent doing the expert things yeah. and the, uh, you know, the carpal tunnels and the, the, the ulna at the elbow and this sort of thing is done by the neurologist who's seen them and maybe on the same occasion that they're seeing them for the, for the first time. Well, though, to be fair, a lot of the things you just mentioned, carpal tunnel, all that can be done by the clinical physiologists, the technicians who often have substantial expertise in that. and Or the ultrasonographer. Or the ultrasonographer. However, the question is whether the, the clinician should then be comfortable and competent in interpreting those tests. And, and, and I think it's quite interesting if you're, you know, we're all much more familiar and thoughtful about looking at MRs and images and we'll say, now, this this lesion doesn't look quite right for MS, even though we're not radiologists. And in a way that the black box remains firmly closed for neurophysiology. And, and clearly the balance is in the wrong place at the moment. Yeah, yeah. So there we are. And maybe with shape of training, this will change it. Maybe the GERFT report will change it. We'll see. Right. OK, so that's the... That's the August issue. It's an exciting issue. It is, it is worth a read. And uh, I think we've got a, plenty to learn from this. And um, I, I do hope that uh, uh, you, you enjoy reading it. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> okay. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye.